I remember being at the playground and I met this awesome caretaker and she asked me the question that I dreaded the most at the time, which was, what do you do? What I should have said is, I'm an artist, but I didn't say any of that. I just kind of panicked and said, I didn't work outside the home. And then I was anguished. Why did I answer that way? That's not how I want the world to see me. And if I want the world to see me as an artist, I can't even say it out loud. What does that say about where I am? So I would pursue these opportunities and then I would openly share them until eventually my imposter syndrome was just obliterated. It was just a series of going through those uncomfortable steps and doing risky things. Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. I am your host, Tracy Antsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for episode 192 of ADHD for Smartass Women. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at tracyantsuka.com. My purpose, as you know, is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. And in the thousands of ADHD women that I've had the privilege of meeting, I've never met a one not one that wasn't truly brilliant at something. So for all of these reasons, I am delighted to introduce you to Katie Hayes. Katie Hayes is an award-winning printmaker living in North Carolina. Diagnosed with severe ADHD as a young child, Katie was able to succeed in grade school with a combination of stimulant medication and physical exhaustion, sometimes playing three sports a day after school. Although she has been an artist her whole life, Katie did not study art in college. She struggled with imposter syndrome and worried about becoming a starting artist stereotype. After a career in higher education, Katie finally took a big leap and started New South Pattern House, her printmaking business in 2019. Three years later, Katie is not a starving artist. She's a thriving one. 
From her ADHD-friendly studio, Katie creates work that has been featured in magazines, public spaces, and galleries across her region, and supports herself as a full-time artist. Katie credits her ability to hyperfocus and her extreme emotional energy with her current success. She is now convinced that ADHDers make the best entrepreneurs. Katie, did I get all that right? You sure did. I personally believe that all entrepreneurs are somewhere on the ADHD spectrum. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it depends. It depends what qualifies as an entrepreneur. I guess when I say that, I don't necessarily mean someone who opens the corner grocery store or the corner laundromat or a franchisee. But sometimes I think maybe, maybe that's not true. You know, maybe the desire to go out on your own. And I'm assuming even in those instances, there are things that you're going to do that you're going to do your way and you won't have to answer to anybody. But Katie, we've only just started and I've already gone off on a tangent. So (laughs) welcome. And before we talk about what it is that you do, can we talk about your ADHD diagnoses first? Yes, sure thing. So I was diagnosed really, really early, actually, with ADHD. So from the time I was a young baby, it was clear that there was something really different about me. I struggled with transitions. I had major attachment issues. I had major sleep issues. And I was extremely hyperactive. So the first time a medical professional suggested to my parents that I I might have ADHD. I was two years old and my mom had taken me to a pediatric neurologist um, to talk about the sleep problems that I was having. And this neurologist was watching me sort of zoom around his, his office. And he said to my mom, you know, have you ever thought this kid is going to have ADHD? And my mom said, well, what's that? Is that where they're really hyper? And he said, yeah. And my mom just looked at him and said, do you think? And so um, his suggestion to my mom at the time was, you need to move to a school district that has really good special ed programs because no teacher is going to put up with that in the classroom. And, and my wait, mom, a minute, wait a minute, you are two years old? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, number one, I want to take my hat off. Was it a he? He, yeah. I want to take my hat off to him that, number one, he thought that a girl can have ADHD. Yeah. But, oh my gosh, special ed because nobody's going to put up with you and you're only two? Exactly. Did it scare your mom? She pushed back, actually. You know, she said, well, I think this kid is really bright. She knows a lot of her letter sounds. She knows all these songs. I, you know, I think my, she's only two, but she seems pretty smart. And yeah, he just said, I think she'll fail academically. I think she'll fail socially. Essentially, she's just too different. Wow. Um, now, I am lucky. Everyone in my family has ADHD, it turns out. And my mom, as she was sort of trying to help her her girls, I have an older sister and a younger sister, on this journey became so interested in the medical process and supporting us that she actually went to medical school and is now a pediatrician that diagnoses ADHD. And oh she, my gosh, that's incredible. 
I love yeah. that story. I want her on the podcast too. <laughs> no, she's amazing. She um talk about super energy and hyper focus. So when I was, let's see, I was four years old and my big sister was seven, and she went to medical school. And then she had my little sister was a newborn when she was a pediatric resident. So my mom, yeah, survived all that. But in part, she was hyper-focused on that because she loved her kids and she saw that we were needing different types of support, right? And so, you know, she kind of took what the specialist said and she was like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, I think I'm going to go to medical school instead (laughs) and figure out how to help my kids. So immediately she pushed back or was there any, I mean, she just absolutely knew that uh -uh, you got it wrong. I think so. I think that um, my mom was always fiercely protective of us and her approach to our ADHD was, um, was always a, it's not your fault, but it is your problem sort of approach. So I was really lucky in that she didn't think there was anything wrong with us, but my parents both recognized that we were different and we we did have different needs and that we weren't always going to be in environment when we were out in the world um, that would make us feel like we belonged. So they made sure that our home environment, you know, I never was told when I was at home, it was never like, oh, Katie, you're too much. You have too much energy right now. Now, there were definitely times they were like, hey, Katie, before bed, I want you to go run around the house five times. (laughs) (laughs) And they knew that that made a difference. They did. Yeah, they did. So, um, so yeah, I was, I was diagnosed at a really early age. Um, I started. So can I ask you, how old were you when you were diagnosed? Was that when you were, I mean, I was in second grade when I I went ahead and got my official diagnosis. And the reason why um, they always kind of knew that it was going to be part of my story. But my older sister, she's three and a half years older than I am. And she is more of the kind of classic. She was masking. She's a girl. She's very intelligent. She wasn't hyperactive. And so for the first, she was starting to struggle in school for the first time. She was really bright. So she was able to kind of get by, but my parents noticed that she wasn't achieving kind of at the level that you would expect. So when they realized she needed a diagnosis, they said, well, let's bring Katie along and just go ahead and get her diagnosed. (laughs) So I was in second grade and that's also, I started um, taking medication in second grade and um, took medication all the way through college. So medication works for you. It does. Yeah. I took Ritalin and I really believed that I would not have been able to, to get through school without it. But equally as big of a part of my story was also just exercise. My parents realized that I just needed to constantly be in motion. And so I did every sport you can imagine. I played soccer year round. I did gymnastics. I did karate. I was on the swim team. I did baseball. I tried basketball. I just kind of did a little bit of everything. You were sporty um, spice. I was sporty spice, and um, but kind of like Appalachian redneck sporty spice. (laughs) So we were also like climbing mountains and going (laughs) water rafting and stuff like that. Katie, where exactly are you from? Remind me. (laughs) Okay, so I I'm from um, 
Cullowee, North Carolina. It's an hour southwest of Asheville, North Carolina, which is kind of the nearest landmark that people will know of. So I grew up basically in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Wow. It's a beautiful place to grow up. Not really a good place if you like shopping malls, but if you like, you know, hiking and kayaking and, you know, jumping off cliffs into mountain lakes, it's a great place to grow up. And so um, was that a community that knew a lot about ADHD? <laughs> it knows more now because my, my mom is uh, has been a pediatrician there for a number of years. I think it was a community. It's a rural community. And there's a college there. Western Carolina University is in my hometown. And so you have a lot of kids of academics. And so I, I have found that there seems to be a lot of neuroatypical uh, kids in that group. And um, we also were drawing. So my high school that I went to, it was everybody came. There was only one high school in the whole county. So everybody kind of comes in. So it definitely wasn't a place that was where there were a lot of specialists that understood ADHD. But it was definitely a place where it was understood that like, there were rowdy farm kids that needed to move their bodies and that was okay. That didn't make you a bad person, you know? So the school system, um, they had services or was it more, nope, you just need to, you know, take your medication and make it work. And then at home, your mom was clearly doing more and more research. <laughs> yeah. You know, I never really received any services in the school. I, I can't remember any school professionals working with me on strategies or techniques to deal with my ADHD. It was all, you know, medication. And then um, the skills that I learned, I, I did karate for years and the self-discipline and focus and meditation that's kind of built into that was super helpful for me. But honestly, only since I have been an adult have I really started to tap into some of the coping mechanisms and to understand my ADHD? I honestly, I just kind of viewed it as something that made it hard for me to sit still and pay attention in the boring parts of school, but something that made me very successful in many other parts of my life. Was school hard for you? It was sometimes yes and no. Um, I, Ritalin really helped. I was able to, I was a, a very bright student. I was voted most likely to succeed <laughs> in my high school class. I went to a good college, but I didn't know the ways to build in structure for myself. So I didn't have any strategies for helping me with note taking. I was sort of just drifting along, if that makes sense. So but, um, wait a minute. Okay, I'm going to push back on that. <laughs> you were doing more than drifting if you were voted most likely to succeed. I I made good grades, but you know, it was a lot of when especially in high school, a lot of that is just memorizing. So like you have an exam coming up, you hyperfocus, you cram, you study, you do okay on the test and then you instantly forget that information. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of how I like got through um, high school. And it helped also because I did play so many sports. I knew that I would only have, you know, say 30 minutes to get whatever homework done between 
once uh-huh. rather than next. So it, it made me not able to procrastinate in the same way. And well, actually- that's a strategy. I mean, that's a really interesting strategy. Yes. I, I vividly remember like doing homework in the car after soccer practice on the way to karate or like, you know, sitting in swim meets or soccer tournaments, trying to cram in homework here and there. And in fact, when I got to college and then I had so many fewer responsibilities, what I found is that once I started playing sports in college, that also really helped me with my grades. Well, I mean, we know that work expands to fit the time you have. It's so (laughs) So So true. true. So true. And especially for our brains. I mean, I think just having that shortened period of time, it's so much easier for us than if we've got two weeks to get something done. Yes. So what happened in college? Were there any issues as far as a transition from high school to college or did you just pop right in and you did fine? College was a big shock for me. I went to UNC Chapel Hill and um, I was there. I was used to be being one of the brainier kids at my rural Western North Carolina high school. And then I went off to college and there were all sorts of kids that came from fancy private schools and prep schools and or just much more rigorous, academically rigorous school systems than I did. And they had learned all these study skills and note taking uh, strategies, and they they were just a lot more prepared than I was. Um, so I had to find my way. I had several strategies. I, I never once registered for classes on time my entire time <laughs> I was in college. So my semester always started with me sitting in on classes and then um, trying that I wanted. And then trying to convince the professors to let me into the class. Which again, Katie, can I point out what a good strategy that is? Because, <laughs> right? Then you knew that, oh my gosh, I really want to get into this class. Yeah. And I'm sure if you have that sort of energy, the professor's going to do what they tend to hopefully get you in. Uh, yeah, sometimes. Sometimes <laughs> I did have professors tell me, um, maybe don't talk as much in class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had. I, I had that kind of energy in college, I guess. So I, um, you know, when you're sitting in a class and your professor asks a question and then like, they're just dying up there. Like no one is answering. It's just crickets. And then there's this uncomfortable silence. I cannot stand that. And so when I was in college, I would always break the silence. And um, I had a, a professor, a male professor, tell me one time, you know, Katie, I love that you contribute to class conversation, but I think maybe some of the other students aren't talking because you always do. And so (laughs) could you take it easy? Could you maybe not speak as much during class? And I said, okay. And so I did that for a week. And then after that week, he came back and he was like, just kidding. I was only talking to break the uncomfortable silence because, um, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't stand it. I mean, I couldn't stand to see him sweating up there. So, oh, oh my gosh! So you felt bad for him? Yes, <laughs> that's the sweetest thing ever. And then he comes and tells you, "Stop it." Yes, that is correct. Okay, so so what happened then? So I will say that I did not make it through as I intended to um, go pre-med. Ah. Uh, I just, 
I don't know why I thought that I wanted to be a doctor. My mom was a doctor and she's amazing and she's like my hero. So I just thought, well, I'm a smart kid. I like biology, especially. I really loved nature. And um, I was the president of my biology club in high school. I was like, yeah, this is my thing. And then I got to college and um, started taking some of those classes. And I don't know if it was my ADHD But I just realized like, you know, I can force myself to do this work, but I hate it. Just deep down, I'm I'm not deep down interested. I'm not fascinated by chemistry. I'm not fascinated by some of these aspects of biology. I certainly am not fascinated by Calc 2. (laughs) (laughs) I I kind of limped along my first year on this pre-med track and then talked to my parents and I was like, this is just not what I want to do with my life. I do not want to spend my next eight years taking classes that I'm not interested in. And they were great. And their response was, you know what, why don't you just take this approach? Just sign up for all the classes that interest you, right? Mm-hmm. And, and don't worry about what you're going to major in. We want you to just push forward with what interests you. And so I ended up with an English um, major in anthropology minor. So I'm duly unemployable. Ah, But you have great parents. Yes, but I do have great parents. And ultimately, oh my gosh, they were so right because, (laughs) so I'm curious. So, so you're an artist now. Mm -hmm. How do your English and anthropology degrees help you? Oh my God. Here's what I feel. I feel that In every situation that you're in, every person that you meet, every job that you have, everything you study, there's something that you can extract from that, that you can take with you and grow from. Mm -hmm. So certainly, you know, my, my English degree, I communicate for my job. I write copy for my website all the time. I read constantly. um, And, you know, I think communication is one of, is like a core skill that allows me to be successful as a business owner and also as a human. Uh, And then anthropology, those classes just taught me a lot about the world. You know, I was kind of a bumpkin. I was from, I'm from Cullowee, North Carolina. I had a pet pig and three neighbors named Verlin, you know, like I was. Wait, three neighbors named what? Verlin. Yeah. Verlin? I've never even heard that name. Is that a common name? I, on my on my street, it is Tracy. <laughs> Verlin, like kind of like Berman. No, no, like Merlin. Think of it like Merlin the Wizard. I know. Like I'm drunk. Okay. <laughs> <I'm joking. laughs> um, yeah. So I mean, anthropology courses were like I I'd never heard words like globalization before. I had never, um, you know, I didn't know a lot about other cultures or global problems or, you know, I love history. I love archaeology. And so all that kind of wrapped up and helped me form the worldview that I have, which definitely informs, you know, my business practices, my, when I'm making decisions about um, even like where I'm going to source materials from that I use for my mat board and my, you know, my packaging and stuff like that. I'm drawing on those experiences that I you know, I learned in college. So yeah, I don't think I could be where I am today if I hadn't taken the long way. Do you know what I mean? 
I completely know what you mean. And I think it's Steve Jobs who always said that you can't see your path looking forward. You can only see it looking backwards and how all of your experiences and of course, you know, classes and people you meet, they all impact ultimately who you become. However, I think it's interesting that, you know, you from the beginning had this strategy. I mean, maybe it wasn't on purpose, but you would go to classes, you would figure out what really excited you and lit you up. And so ultimately that's how you chose your majors. And it makes sense to me how they now impact everything that you do. Maybe not directly, but certainly indirectly. Mm -hmm. So tell us about your art. Tell us about what you do. So uh, I'm a printmaker and surface pattern designer. Printmaking is primarily the the major part of my business. And for those folks who don't aren't familiar with um, relief printmaking, what I do is I I make hand carved blocks. So I make a design, I transfer my design onto a carving surface, and then I carve away the negative space of my design. And what that leaves me with is um, a carving. It's um, raised up, and everything that you want to be in white has been carved away. Mm-hmm. And then I take inks. Um, so I roll inks out onto a plate in various colors and I ink up the carving that I've just made. And then my paper goes down on top of that inked up carving. And then you press down, you rub the back and you kind of pray that you get a clean imprint. So think of it like a stamp. It's like a giant stamp in reverse. And so how so big are these called block prints then that you're carving out? Mm-hmm. How big are they typically? Um, it depends. My smallest size that I make is uh, five by seven mini prints. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest size that I make is um, 18 by 24. And it's matted up to a 22 by 28 um, frame. Wow. So it just depends. And so, you know, for a small block, it may take me a few hours to carve or a larger block might take me a few days. So are these hand carved? Yep. Hand carved. I've always loved working with tools. My dad taught me how to um, how to build things in his shop when I was younger. And so I've always felt really empowered by that. What I love about printmaking is that you get like a dopamine hit from every part of the creative process. So it's really fun to design the prints and to sketch them out. It's really fun to do the carving. And then it's also really fun to see the ink go on and to pull the print up. Um, it's just really rewarding. So my brain gets lots of little mini dopamine hits through that process. So how do you make these so perfect? So, okay. So I understand what are you carving from? Like, okay, you've got the tool, like, is it wood? What is it that you're carving into? I guess would be the right question. Linoleum. So you can make a block print from a a number of different surfaces. Um, you can carve into wood. You could carve into a potato. You can carve into foam. I remember that in grade school. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, What I primarily carve into um, are a few different substrates. Linoleum is the kind of um, the gray stuff that a lot of people um, experimented with in high school art class. That's what I first learned to carve on. And then now they make a whole family of linoleum 
related products. So my favorite is called EcoCarve, and it's made from all recycled materials. They're a little bit softer and not as crumbly as traditional lino. And that's what I mostly carve in. How did you even find out about this? <laughs> How did this start? When I was in high school, my high school art teacher did like a printmaking unit, and I carved a linoleum block of a rabbit. And um, I had it, she took it to the local community college and it was on display there. And someone saw it and contacted her and said, I want to buy a copy of this print. And so, um, you know, I was thrilled. I, I, I think I was 15 years old and I think I charged them $15. And that was the first piece of art that I ever sold. I got away for years. I stepped away from printmaking because I just didn't have all the carving tools or, you know, you, the inks or the rollers or anything like that at home. So I was mostly doing painting and drawing. And then um, years went by. I had my two kids. I was working in higher ed. And then after my son Benjamin was born, uh, we moved from Oberlin, Ohio, where my kids were born back to North Carolina. And I was doing a lot of surface pattern design and that's making repeating patterns for wallpaper and fabric. Through that process, I remembered printmaking and I, I remembered, oh man, I used to really have a knack for this and it was really enjoyable. So that year for Christmas, what I, I told my whole family, okay, what I want is to tool up um, back into printmaking. So one person bought me a roller and one person bought me a tube of ink and one person bought me some paper. And so between everybody, I kind of got all the materials that I needed to get going again. And I just never looked back from there. So now it's my full-time job. Okay. So let's back up a little bit. Yes. You said that you were working in higher education. And I remember saying that in your bio, tell us what you were doing there. And then how did you ultimately make the transition to printmaking? Was it just that that Christmas gift and you decided that, oh my gosh, I'm going to do this. I love it. No. So um, I, I had a great career in higher ed. And most recently when we lived in Oberlin, Ohio, and I worked for a college access program. So I had an office um, at the local high school and an office at Oberlin College. And um on the college side of things, I would recruit, hire, and train college tutors to come and work in the city school district. And on the high school side of things, I had an office where basically juniors and seniors mostly would come into my office and be like, help, I'm panicked. I don't know what to do with my life. You know, I'm stressed out about all the kind of bullshit paperwork that you have to do in order to launch into the world, right? You have to fill out the FAFSA and you have to figure out financial aid award letters and you have to write college essays. And um, if you're not planning to go, go to college, you have to get a resume and try to find work. And so my job at the high school was just to kind of help students. They would walk in, literally it was just to help panic teenagers find their way. Oh. Um, so all the paperwork that if I were doing it for myself would feel really boring and uninteresting to my ADHD brain. I'm so motivated by social interactions that I was able to really um, help those kids 
and meet their energy level, right? My ADHD super helped me in that role because I would be in the middle of one thing and then a teenager would come in my office and burst into tears and I, I, would, I would be able to meet the moment, right? I had the energy to meet the moment and drop what I needed to do and help them sort out whatever was stressing them out. So it sounds Uh, like you really liked that, that job. I loved that job, but there's also a lot more to me than, you know, I put, I put a lot of my other interests on the side because I did love that job. And I had this moment, um, the moment I knew I needed to leave higher ed was I was meeting with a parent and I had just helped her son we did. We filed the FAFSA together, and I helped him with his college essays. And um, I met with this parent who is a friend of mine. Also, I, I knew her socially, and she said to me, "Katie, I'm just. It's really obvious to me that you are doing what you were meant to do on this earth, uh, <laughs> in this job." And I kind of just froze. I didn't know what to say because that wasn't how I felt at all. (laughs) You know, and it made me think like, you know what, if I don't leave now, I'm never going to leave. That's the kind of person you are though. And just so our listeners know, I was telling Katie before she got on that I can just tell that everything she does, she does really well. And so it doesn't surprise me that even though you may not feel that way, you do such a good job at everything that you do that other people feel that way, right? They think that everything is what you're meant to be doing. And I talk about this all the time because just because you're good at something doesn't mean you should be doing it, right? But we get sucked into that. Right, right. And and I also think that there was only a limited amount of time that I could have been in that role and been been that successful. I, I was like Michael Jordan, right? I, I retired at the peak of my career. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was in this sweet spot where I was young enough that the students, you know, I was like the cool aunt that they could confide in, but also what ha- was organized enough to be able to help them through it. And then, uh, or at least they thought I was organized. They didn't know. and then to the parents I was old enough that I had you know authority that they would trust me to sit down with their tax documents and and try to work out their financial futures so it couldn't have lasted forever and I knew that and I knew that um I was happy to give those years to the kids because I really did love them but I also you know there was a lot I wasn't doing the thing I was best at I was telling these kids follow your dreams do what you know do what you want to do with your life. But I wasn't doing that myself. But did you know at that time, did you know what it was that uh, you're meant to be doing? I didn't know exactly. I knew that I wanted to have a creative career. I knew that what I was best at in the world was making art prolifically. Mm. I settled on printmaking, but I experimented a lot with a lot of different things. I love to write. I play music. My husband and I played in a band for a little while. You know, I I just kind of tried everything. I tried designing t-shirts. I did, you know, I got into the fabric and wallpaper design, which I still do. And now that is a a great income stream for me. But I just kind of did that ADHD thing where I, I grasp around and I tried out making inlays for guitars and mandolins. And then I, I tried out writing knitting patterns and I did it all until I kind of found my niche and found my place. 
and again, I, it all made me a better maker and artist. And, you know, I couldn't be where I am now if I hadn't done those things. So how did you make that transition? Was it just the move that made it for you or Mm -hmm. was it conscious? We had, there was, there was kind of a natural transition point in my life. I was pregnant with our, our second kid and uh, my husband had been running a nonprofit that was, it was always designed as kind of a catalytic temporary organization um, geared towards sustainability. And meanwhile, he had an opportunity. One of our friends from his grad school program had started a solar company in North Carolina and was kind of asking him to come down. And so we talked about it and we had a choice. We could stay where we were in Ohio, which we really loved, or we could take this leap. And one of the things that we knew is, okay, if we stay in Ohio, Katie will never leave this job because she loves these kids too much. And, you know, we, we thought that the solar industry was just a really, in terms of our personal priorities, it was just really important to go all in on that industry. And so we said, okay, let's make this leap. We'll move down. Sean will get involved here and we will start to transition Katie over into a creative career, which turns out it's very hard to do that when you also have two kids at home. <laughs> <laughs> no. Highly recommend childcare. Uh huh. Um, and it wasn't really until I had a few years of sort of being a stay at home mom and trying to just stay sane by staying up at night and um, teaching myself Adobe Illustrator and doing art just to keep that part of my brain working. And um, I started to make a little bit of an income from that. And we just had to make that impulsive leap and say, okay, we need to invest in some childcare in order to see if this is a real possibility. So we did that in 2019, halfway through the year. Things were going great. We made the decision to have both our kids in full-time child care, or my daughter was in school, my son in full-time child care. I started my business and then the pandemic <laughs> happened. So oh. and then you became full full-time child care again. Then I was full-time child care for Ben and also like a, you know, proctoring this online learning for my daughter, who's now nine. She was in first grade at the time. So that was um Again, my ADHD got me through it because I had so much energy that I was able to give them what they needed during the day and then stay up at night and try to keep my my business going. Um, so I was able to actually grow my business a lot over the first year of the pandemic. I think that I got really lucky in that I... I make wall art. I make art for people's walls and people were stuck at home staring uh-huh. at the walls that they yeah. <laughs> had, um, you know, for years they've been like, I'm going to do something about the art on my wall. And then everybody was at home staring at the walls and saying, I'm finally going to do something about it. So my demand was going up, but I, you know, I was still trying to keep things stable at home and start my business. And it, was a really hard couple of years. And I don't think I could have done it without my intense energy levels. So can you tell us a little bit about your art in that you have a very specific style? Yes. So I'm a specialist. I specialize in place-based design. 
And this is really intentional because I know, I know myself and I know that um, I, I can get off track. It's really hard with, with my art. I'm always having to ask myself, is this on brand for me? Is this a smart business decision or is this a side quest? right? Yeah. So the art that I make is all focused in the Southeastern United States. So I gave myself limits, but it's big enough that I don't feel constrained, right? I'm not only illustrating herons, I'm illustrating anything Southeastern United States, flora, fauna, cities, culture, that sort of thing. And um, what that allows me to do is I have that ADHD thing where I kind of follow my nose right? But like in the mornings, I walk my dog. And the other morning, I walked my dog down by the creek and saw these adorable baby muskrats. And I'm snapping <laughs> pictures. And now I don't even know what a muskrat is. I oh, they're, so they're so cute. Aww. It's like a tiny beaver, but with like, without the beaver tail, and they swim around in the water. They're so cute. Oh, um, well, you're too young. But there was this ridiculous song Captain and Tony Tennille called Muskrat Love. And I always wondered, <laughs> what the hell is a muskrat? <laughs> oh, no. It's this cute little water animal, you know. And then, like, I'm going out in my yard and I'm, you know, I see a butterfly and a zinnia. And I'm like, ooh, maybe I should do that instead. And it's all on brand for me. So I'm surrounded myself. I've built my brand around things that surround me. So that when I follow my nose and I'm led to, you know, daydream about this and that, it still is, feels really cohesive. My work still feels really cohesive. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And I think it's so smart because, again, with our penchant for shiny and new, I think it is so easy as entrepreneurs to get off track. You have set boundaries up, though, so you know that, um, okay, this is where, this is the container I'm going to stay within. You're doing something you absolutely love. And then you're doing it in an area that involves nature, right? Where you can go out and be constantly inspired just by being outside and walking around. Correct. Correct. And I do have, I, I also have an outlet, um, with the surface design, I'm not as strict with myself when I'm making patterns for fabric. It's not as much of a time commitment. And so that, yeah, there was a point in the pandemic where I was like, yeah, I need to make a fabric pattern that is a dumpster fire and I need to illustrate raccoons and, and dumpsters on fire. And, you know, and that wouldn't have fit with my, with New South Pattern House or my printmaking business, but I do allow myself to play in those areas. I'm just constantly having to walk that line and saying, okay, what's a side quest that's going to derail my business? And what is a smart idea that's going to push my business forward? That's the constant tension in my creative process. I think what's important, and I keep hearing you say it though, is that you're aware of how your brain works. And so you are putting strategies in place that work with your brain to keep you on track. Yes. And yes. this is, this, I think also that's what's been, what you just said, Tracy, that's what's been the game changer for me. So my whole life, I've known that I have a lot of potential. And until now, I have always felt like I was a little bit underemployed, like I just wasn't really realizing my full potential. 
And the thing that has allowed me to do that is instead of just saying, okay, well, I need to take Ritalin and exhaust myself to the point where I can sit still in order to, you know, suffer through chemistry class. Now, when I approach things, I think like, okay, how's my brain going to do in this situation? And how can I hack myself, right? How can I hack into my hyperfocus? How can I strengthen the areas in which I know that I'm going to be strong already, right? So I use body doubling. An example of that is that when I'm pulling prints in the studio, I use the body doubling strategy constantly. I'm always listening to podcasts. I listen to your podcast. I'll listen to Skillshare classes. Mm-hmm. And um, what I found is that I'll pull twice as many prints if it's part of a conversation, you know? So I'm always thinking about how I can set up my space, set up my work day, set up my life in a way that will make I'm not fighting against my brain. I'm going with it. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. You are being intentional. It all comes back to what is it that you're trying to get done and how can you do it better that feels good? Mm-hmm. I wish uh, I wish you could see my studio. I'm sitting up in my studio right now. And this is the first space I've ever designed with my ADHD in mind. And so what I did, and I was able to, when I started my business, I was just working out of this room adjacent to my kitchen, right? It was like an old, super tiny dining room. And as my business grew, I was literally just on top of myself. And so we we made this financial decision. I had, my business was doing well enough that we were going to put in HVAC in this garage, the secondary garage building that is on our, at our house. And so for the first time I was able to design a space that works for my brain. And so I have little stations set up. So I have a station specifically for where I pack prints. So when I'm going to art festivals or shipping things out, I have a a workstation that has all of my clear bags, all of my mailers, all my mat board, my backing board, my promotional materials I put inside with each print and they're all right there where I can grab them. So I don't have to walk across the house or even across the room and get distracted. Can (laughs) I ask you, Mm -hmm. as an artist, Uh is the shipping the hardest part for you? (laughs) No. No? Packing prints is boring. Shipping prints, I think that I'm really motivated by two things, anxiety and also social. Um, The social contract is really important to me. So like if someone has purchased something from me, it's almost like a game I play with myself. How fast can I get it out the door? Because um, I shipping is lumped in with customer service in my brain. And so I'm motivated to try to be like, Oh, did you get your print? Did you, you know, are you going to leave me a review? I know you love <laughs> right? So the shipping is wrapped up in that for me. But yes, packing prints when I'm getting ready to go to festivals and I need to get 100 prints packed, that's pretty boring. Um, and I need, a, I need a podcast or something to get me through it. Yeah, anything to do with shipping and packing for me, even like sending returns back. Oh my gosh. It's always like right before the deadline. I hate doing it. I can't do it. I went on an exercise kick last year and I I found this really cute. It was like a sports bra from Old Navy. And I 
I got it and they had a great return policy and it broke the first day I had it. It snapped. Did I send it back? No, no, I did not. Did I, did I keep it? I just threw it away actually last week. Because you probably look at it and beat yourself up every time, right? <laughs> you know, that ADHD tax is really a real thing for me. I agree. Okay. So I know, Katie, that you have struggled with imposter syndrome. And I was wondering if you could talk to us about that. Oh, man. Yes. This is one of my favorite things to talk about. So first of all, I I would like to say that I only recently made the connection between my imposter syndrome as an artist and my rejection sensitivity dysphoria as an ADHD person. I'm really a hypersensitive person. If someone, if I think someone is mad at me, I want to die. <laughs> like it feels really unmanageable for me. So I think that as an artist, here I was. I knew I was an artist, um, but I was going through the world not wanting to share that because when you make art and you put it out into the world, you're putting a piece of yourself into space and leaving it vulnerable to critique and to say that to represent your identity and put your identity out into the world, it's just, it is all vulnerability. And I was really scared. So I remember... I remember there was a moment um, where I was earning an income as an artist, not not enough to go full time yet. Um, I had just published a book, actually, and um, I published a book I, on what? Yeah, <laughs> anything to do with art, or is this just you know, an ADHD aside? Oh, and I just published a book. Don't worry about it. It was it was one of the things that I tried as I was like kind of throwing spaghetti on the wall, right? And, and, my, and what am I going to do with my creative career? I wrote a, a book of kids poetry for my kids and, and then did like a crowdfunded self-publishing route. So I remember being at the playground and I met this awesome caretaker. She was there with two little girls that she watched and my kids were there and we were chatting and we're having this great conversation. And she asked me the, the question that I dreaded the most at the time, which was, what do you do, right? What I should have said is, I'm an artist and I make patterns and do paintings. And I wasn't doing printmaking yet, but I was, I was like professionally speaking at, you know, local events and things like that. I didn't say any of that. I just kind of panicked and said, you know, I, I, didn't work outside the home. And then and then I was anguished, right? For the next like month, I'm just anguishing. Why did I answer that way? That's not how I want the world to see me. There's nothing wrong with being a full-time stay-at-home parent. That wasn't what I was trying to do. And that wasn't how I wanted the world to see me. And so if I can't even, if I want the world to see me as an artist, I can't even say it out loud. What does that say about where I am, right? Yeah. So I anguished about it. And then I took a step, which was I wrote a blog post about it. I used to write a lot in this mommy blog I kept. And um, wait a minute, a mommy was, blog. That, so was that your blog? Yeah, I did. Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention that too, but okay. Yeah, I did. <laughs> Is any of this surprising to you though? No, no, no. 
so, but I, I made this blog post about imposter syndrome and I just owned it and put it out into the world and was like, hey guys, if you see me pulling this shit, I want you to say something. And also, if you're struggling with this, I see you and like, if you need validation, like let's basically, I just owned it and was really public about what I was struggling with. And the response was really great because there were a lot of people in my networks who said, you know, I struggled with this in my career too. And they were all people that to me, they seemed amazing, right? They're doing incredible things, right? And it was just really reassuring to know that um, other people had my back and um, that I, I could put myself out there. And then I had kind of a cheerleading section every time I would I would do something brave, right? Since something new and brave and put myself out there, post about artwork that I was making or go on the local radio show or be interviewed by the local newspaper. I would, I would pursue these opportunities and then I would openly share them until eventually my imposter syndrome was just obliterated. Right. But it was just a series of going through those uncomfortable steps and doing risky things like this podcast. This is the first podcast I've ever done. Well, you're um, doing great. <laughs> no surprise. But you know, like y- you put yourself out there and you see an opportunity and you say, okay, that seems a little scary to me, so I should probably do it. Yes. And what does it do? It jacks up that dopamine, right? For sure. Because you're proud of yourself. So what we should probably... um say is that for those listeners who've never heard of rejection-sensitive dysphoria, it's not in the DSM-5, but emotion is clearly recognized by all experts in ADHD. And the whole idea behind rejection-sensitive dysphoria is that many of us, if not all of us to a certain degree, I mean, that's really what the imposter syndrome is all about. We suffer from this fear of criticism and rejection. And it can be something that we fear that's not even there, but we build it in. And the thought is that the reason we do this is because we've lived a life of ADHD and kind of always waiting for that comment that we're too much or we have to moderate our voice or, you know, we're talking too much. And the professor comes up to us and says, can you not do that? So that's what Katie and I are talking about here. And I think that that imposter syndrome, it never goes away. I really felt like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm really comfortable with what I'm doing here. I'm good at doing this. But then the next thing that you do that takes you out of your comfort zone, it starts up again, right? And so... The more you do, the more imposter syndrome will come up, but the more you just do what it is that you want to do, the more you realize that you have control over it. Would you agree? Yeah, I think so for sure. And the more you realize like everybody's just faking with, everybody's faking it to a certain degree. It's just that we, um, you said it really well, is when you have ADHD, you go through the world and the world is, it's always kind of pulling you back. You're never really in an environment that's set up for you. And so you're 
always watching for that. And you just always think, you know, someone's going to come down on me soon. And um, it turns out no one's going to come down on you. Except for you, right? Yeah. yeah. No, I, I absolutely love that. Okay. So Katie, this has been a fantastic discussion, but I don't want to leave you without asking you, what are the ADHD traits that you feel are responsible for your success? In my case, it's the combination of mental and physical energy. So when I was younger, I was really hyperactive. As an adult, I need to move around. I can't sit still, but I'm not, I don't need to go run a marathon every day. Um, <laughs> but my brain is always, yeah, I also can't sit still and watch a TV show on the couch, you know? So I think that I have a combination of mental energy and physical energy that allows me to be a prolific artist. So I don't just make art, Tracy. I make a lot of art. (laughs) (laughs) With that, I think comes a high emotional intelligence. So because what we just talked about, how you're constantly wondering if people are going to think that you're too much. Um, When I am selling my art and I am trying to read customers, they'll come into my space if I'm exhibiting or um, I'm at an art show and someone comes in and I'm interacting with them, I'm always reading them, right? To see if like, do they want to talk? Are they trying to bond with the artist here? Or do they want a space to browse? And because I have been trained my whole life to do that, I'm a great salesperson. <laughs> it helps me, it helps me move my art. And then finally, I think just hyper-focus, right? That's why my brand is really cohesive and my business is thriving is because I've been able to hack my hyper-focus. Absolutely. And what do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is? Find out what you hyper-focus on and can you build a career around that? Mm-hmm. Um, outsource the things, except that you're, you kick ass at a lot of things, but there's some things that you're bad at and figure out what you can outsource. And then everything else, build systems, right? So like if I can't get around packing prints, I have to do it. At least I can set up a system that will allow me to do it without getting distracted where everything's in one place. Do you have a number one workaround for us? (laughs) For me, I know you were saying before we started recording, you love um, your tablet. I love my bullet journal. I brain dump into my bullet journal and allow that to replace my anxiety. So instead of carrying around the tasks that I, I need to do and being worried that I will mess up at them, I dump it all into the bullet journal and then I can relax. That is so important. I think people don't realize how much of an impact just writing all this crap down And then literally just going through and crossing off the stuff that either you can't do anything about or you can delegate and get rid of so you don't have to worry about it. Because to me, the best way to cross things off is to give it to someone else. (laughs) I love that one. Okay, well, Katie, where can people find you if they want to know more about you? They want to see your art. They want to buy your art. Where do they go? Okay, so if you want to buy my art, you can go to my website. It's www.newsouthpatternhouse.com. And if you want to see me making art, you can follow me on Instagram and that's just at New South Pattern House. I post a lot of process videos, a lot of those great peel and reveal. 
hopefully your eyeballs will rejoice when they see all the inking and um, and peeling and revealing that is part of the artistic process. Well, Kitty, everything you do, you do so beautifully. So I love your Instagram feed. Anyway, thank you so much for spending time with us here. Tracy, you are amazing. Thank you for everything you do. I just want to say I'm so grateful to have a voice that's out there saying, we have ADHD and here's why it rules. Here's what's amazing about it because, you know, I don't think we hear that enough. So thank you for what you do. Thank you. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Katie, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Come join me over at tracyatsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.